The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? Another thing that's really unique about adolescent mental health issues is that, yes, when you're older and you're experiencing depression, you can say, I've been experiencing this for such a long time and it doesn't feel like I've ever felt any other way, but I feel like that's just exacerbated when you're a child because you already have this memory loss from when you were younger, these happy moments. And so for me, I'd been developing this depression for years. And so all I could remember of my childhood was sadness and shame and guilt um, and truly depression. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with my assistant, Sadie Kyler. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. Sadie really has an incredible story. She has overcome so much and she, like me, is really young. So doing this work at a young age is certainly not easy. And I am just always so impressed with how far she's come on her journey I'm sick, you guys, and I'm really bummed. (laughs) This whole year, we have not had a single cold. We've all been just fine. And then my kids, it's interesting because both our household and then the McLean household um, are dear friends who we've been doing school with and basically that are in our bubble. They went down. We went down. I'm the last to go. I feel it. I am... (coughs) I am sick and I am really bummed um, because who likes to do the holidays under the weather? Not me, but that's okay. My kids are on the mend. We know it's not the Rona. We all got tested. We got tested for the Rona and the flu. Neither of our families have it. Thank God. So for the next week, I'll just be staying home. I've got my medley of uh, supplements right next to me. I've got my zinc. I've got my cured nutrition. I've got my kinuforics. I've got my vitamin C and my vitamin D and a little bit of elderberry syrup. And we will make it through this. But right now I will say my chest feels like it is on fire but that's okay. So some exciting things coming up for recovering from reality for our community. I'm so grateful for you guys. I truly am. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for you sharing this and listening every single week. So we've got this month, uh, we've got Johan Hari coming up. His He's a two-time New York Times bestselling author His TED Talk has, I think, millions upon millions of of views at this point. He is one of my favorite speakers when it comes to addiction. And he is coming on the podcast. We actually cover more mental health than addiction, um, which is great. He's coming on the podcast next week. 
If you haven't listened to his book, Lost Connections, and you're dealing with depression or anxiety, I highly suggest it. So we've got Johan Hari. Then we we have, um, oh, Johan Hari's not next week. No, he is. He is next week. <laughs> this is my sick brain. We're trying to piece things together right now. Then we've got Kat Von D. So stoked to hear Kat's story. She's been in recovery for a really long time. And then coming up in January, we have Bob Forrest, who's doing a Q&A with me. And then my buddy, AJ McLean, my favorite Backstreet Boy, although I am biased. He is celebrating one year of sobriety today. I'm so stoked for him. We'll be over at their house later doing cake, celebrating him and his one year milestone. It's been such an incredible journey and I can't wait for you guys to hear his story. And yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. If you want to get your loved one a great gift, (laughs) get yourself a great gift, please head over to the Recovering From Reality website and check out the merch that's available right now. Um, It means so much to me and it helps me keep this ship running. And then also in the Life Reset course, which is a year-long course, weekly coaching by my mom and I. And then is it my mom and I or my mom and me? I think it's my mom. I think it's my mom and me. It is. So from my mom and me. And we also have meditations in there and journal prompts. There's so much. So right now it's currently listed at $39 a month. In January, it's going up to a flat fee of $500 for the year. And then after that, it'll be $799 for the year. It's a great group of people. We have our weekly call on Wednesday nights. It's amazing. We love it. And I hope that you'll join us on this journey of healing. Um, So with that, I wish you guys a happy Monday. I'm going to go put a cough drop in my mouth and take a nap after the cough drop, of course. I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Sadie Kyler. Quick break from today's episode to talk to you guys about Kin Euphorics. Are you looking for the best way to spend dry January? Look no further than Kin. Kin Euphorics is the first non-alcoholic drink for grown-ups who care about the little things like brain function, hormone harmony, great sex, and de-stressing after an insane day. Kin Euphorics are stacked with the good stuff and none of the bad think adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms that can help curb stress in the moment and over time, as well as nootropics that support cognitive function, i.e. clarity, memory, creativity. Kin Euphorics has designed three mood-defining drinks for every occasion. It's like the Spotify of beverages. They've got the high road, which hosts an herbaceous flavor and a feeling of a lifted mind and relaxed body, which is great for a social hour. I reach for high road at the end of a long day and add a splash of club soda or tonic with a squeeze of lime. It's the perfect thing for when I'm looking for a way to kick back, but without the compromise. Then they have the Kin Spring 
Spritz. It's a sparkling Aperol-like brain boost without the crash or hangover. I crack open a Spritz around 4 p.m. to beat my afternoon slump and shift from work into play mode. And then they have my favorite, Dream Light, the booze-free nightcap that tastes like an Amaro and melts away my stress. Not to mention, I sleep like a baby and wake up feeling awesome. Right now, I am dealing with a little bit of a cold and I will say that I took Dream Light last night and it was a total game changer. Who needs NyQuil when you can get a great sleep from Kin? We worked out a special deal for Recovering from Reality podcast listeners. Right now, receive 15% off plus free shipping on your order. Go to kinuforex.com forward slash reality or use code reality at checkout to claim this deal. That's Kin, K-I-N, Euphorix, E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com forward slash reality. Hey friends, my name's Olivia Perez and I'm an entrepreneur, journalist, and the host of the Friend of a Friend podcast. Every Monday, I meet with some of today's youngest and brightest entrepreneurs to make space to tell their stories and shine a light on who I believe to be the next generation of luminaries. I'll interview up-and-comers and game changers from brand builders to personalities, activists, artists, and thought leaders from around the world. Each episode lets you be a fly on the wall during one of the greatest pep talks, like a conversation between you and a friend or a friend of a friend. See you there. So Sadie was just saying that the last time we did a Zoom together was when I was training her to do my weekly newsletter, which I think is funny because um, so I hired Sadie as my intern probably five months ago. What do you think? Something like that. It was like midsummer. Yeah. So I feel like Sadie already knew how to do everything. She was just pretending that she didn't. And so I did this whole two hour long training with her. <laughs> <laughs> and what ended up happening was Sadie basically became my assistant and now um, runs my life, which I'm really grateful <laughs> for. But what's interesting is that it wasn't until several months into you working for me that one day we got on a phone call and I don't even know how it came up, but you started sharing your story and I was like, mm -hmm. whoa. And now Sadie has a podcast of her own. I'm the worst boss ever. I've never listened to it. I'm sure it's amazing. <laughs> Full transparency. I'd never listened to your podcast before you hired me. I'd only known you through Instagram. I love that. So she's never listened to RFR. She had no idea. But Sadie submitted her uh, resume to me. And I was like, this seems like a good fit because she's already running her own Instagram and she's kind of got, you know, some stuff down and whatever. This is a paid internship, guys. So basically now I'm paying <laughs> her to be my assistant, not my intern. But we're looking for an intern. We want an intern. So if you want to come and work and help me and Sadie run this ship, we're taking some applications. We'll take it. And you'll learn a lot, especially yeah. if you've never done a podcast or marketing or Instagram management. You Tons will to learn. learn a lot. But so we're on the phone and one, and this is how bad of a boss I am. <laughs> I never looked at Sadie's 1099. Did you even end up sending me one? No, no. <laughs> I haven't filled it out yet. So Sadie's 17 years old. And what she proceeded to tell me shocked me because I thought that you were like a 25 year old who had been in therapy for six years mm -hmm. um just based off of you know how <laughs> mature you are how put together you are how organized you are um oh I remember what it was you I was like I'm sorry if I'm being hard on you and you're like oh this is nothing my mom 
you know, makes me X, Y, or Z. She's like a drill sergeant over here. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking about for probably an hour about your personal struggle and um, overcoming severe depression and not just depression, but overcoming and surviving terrible, scary teen behavioral modification programs. And Mm -hmm. so I know we've touched on this on the podcast before. If you want to listen to that episode, you can go back. It's with Sydney Montana. We'll link it in the description. I got you. (laughs) Sadie will link it in the description because I don't do that. But Sadie's story is truly incredible. And it is amazing to me how determined you are to break the cycle of chaos and trauma and to do it differently and how empathetic you still are towards your parents who, you know, are flawed, right? Like we're all Mm -hmm. flawed, but the way that you've grown just from the last couple of years of being out of these, you know, terrible institutions is Mm -hmm. really incredible. But let's go back from the outside. Your life looks really put together. You don't look like you could have suffered from depression. You don't look like someone who, you know, has challenges with their parents or who has family drama at all. But almost in a weird (laughs) way, it's like that's what has created the most trauma is that you're trying to keep up with this look and it caused you some pretty severe mental health challenges. So absolutely, let's go all the way back. When did it begin? What do you think triggered it? And how bad did it get before you went into treatment? Yeah. So whenever I tell my story of depression or anxiety or whatever it was that I diagnoses that I got tagged with through my journey, I always think of it from the perspective of the ACE score. And this is something I became more familiar with after listening and editing your podcast. And that you are someone that has an ACE score that is remarkably high. Like you like to say, you shouldn't be alive right now. I'm someone who is absolutely should be alive. I have an ACE score of zero. And I never experienced any trauma. I never experienced any loss. My parents are married. They're together. We have a functioning household. Um, I do well in school. So all of these things are totally in place for me. We moved around a little bit, but nothing crazy. We didn't uproot. And so when it came to experiencing depression and anxiety, I shouldn't have experienced those. I shouldn't have become extremely depressed. I shouldn't have become extremely anxious if we're looking at it from a completely clinical perspective. And yet I was so depressed and so anxious and struggled so severely for such a long time. I began getting really depressed at the end of my middle school years. And the most significant way that my depression kind of showed was through my sleep. And so now I'm the biggest sleep advocate whether it's with friends where they're like, oh, I don't need that much sleep. I just stayed up all night studying. I'm like, that's not the case. Like everyone needs sleep because what I would do is I would come home and I would work on homework from like 3 p.m. until 7 a.m. the next morning and I would go to school. And the idea of going to sleep and having to wake up the next morning and feel that sense of dread and overall depression that I had to live through another day was just too much for me. So I thought if I just avoided that whole experience, 
and distracted myself and continued to put on these different markable fronts, whether it was having a schoolwork that was submitted and done well, and I was getting good feedback from teachers and I was staying busy and being involved, that this, what I was feeling, it would go away. And that if there weren't third party like markers, I would be fine. And so my sleep was extremely disrupted. And of course that would cause conflict, whether it was like, hey, you're not sleeping, no electronics or no phone, et cetera. And I remember I did start seeing a counselor. I think it was like sixth or seventh grade. We would go in and it was, did not have a good experience. We would do sticker charts when I was in middle school for like different behaviors. Um, So not, not effective. And I remember I was still seeing her for probably a year and a half when I was severely clinical, clinically depressed and it never came up and there, I was never diagnosed and we never even talked about that. So I started to become super isolated from my parents in that I would come home and I was acting like I was okay. Maybe we'd be having interactions and I'd be like, oh, I'm fine. We would argue more, but I wasn't presenting as super clinically depressed. And so, of course, I was treated like I wasn't depressed. And so all of these interactions where I was like, okay, why couldn't this school assignment be better? Or where are you at with high school applications? Those were just extremely invalidating because I was going through all this pain and suffering internally and a lot of shame um, and negative self-esteem. I was also in a super unhealthy relationship at the time. Everyone always jokes about their middle school relationships is like, oh, you text each other and you don't ever speak in person. Mine was a bit of the opposite of that. Um, I was dating this guy and I remember before we even started dating, he was like, well, you kissed this guy a year ago, and I just don't know if I can trust you to be faithful when we get married. And I'm just really worried that we'll go through a divorce and it'll be really traumatic for our kids. And so it was like an extreme level of emotional investment, and it was really got to be really draining. And it was really manipulative on both sides, but that became a really all consuming relationship because. I was dealing with my own mental health problems and dealing with severe depression that presented with a lot of um, sleep dysregularities. I struggled with self-harm for a really long time, which I'm sure we'll dive into. But like you mentioned, I was putting on this perfect front. And if I was self-harming, then someone saw that there was physical pain. And there was a way to see that something wasn't right. And that also got so reinforced because I would be depressed, I would self-harm, and my parents would run and get concerned and call on the therapist and be like, what's wrong? What can we do? How can we help you? And in those moments, I would feel actual love and support yeah. and like someone cared about what was going on with for me. Today's episode was brought to you by Osea Malibu, the original plant-based results-driven skincare line. Osea puts your health and the health of our planet first with their potent skincare and body care solutions that are pure, safe, and effective. Their skin-nourishing products are made entirely out of plant-derived ingredients and are non-toxic and a good choice for moms-to-be. Osea stands for the elements of wellness, ocean, sun, earth, and atmosphere. Their entire line is built on these four pillars and pulls from botanical sources around the world to create products that are truly effective. Each product is infused with sustainably sourced organic Patagonian seaweed and active botanicals that create a nutrient and mineral rich bioavailable base. Founded and run by a family of women inspired by the sea, Osea formulates botanical powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. Y'all know 
that I'm a huge fan of this line. I've been using it for years. Recently, I've been using their Vegas Nerve Pillow Mist and my room literally smells like a spa when I go to bed. I'm a huge fan of this entire line. I use their Undaria Argan Oil. I love their Blemish Balm, all of their toners. The entire line is amazing. Right now, you can go to ocmalibu.com forward slash Alexis Haynes for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. Free shipping for U.S. orders over $75 and free samples with every order. That is ocmalibu.com forward slash Alexis Haynes for $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more. So I remember I went to the pediatrician in the fall of my eighth grade year. And he asked me all the questions. He was like, what are, do you experience loss of motivation? Are you interested in things? And he ended the appointment and he was like, okay, so you have a psychiatrist appointment this afternoon. If you don't go, um, your mom's going to call the police and you're going to be escorted to the emergency room to spend some time in the hospital. Um, and so I really recommend you go to that appointment. Uh, and I wasn't like, nothing crazy was happening. I was just a really, really depressed kid. I was so isolated and so cut off and so shut down. Um, so I went to that psychiatrist appointment. I didn't say anything the entire time. I just sat there and I stared at the ground. I think at one point she might've had me like draw a pie chart of my feelings. And I was like, sad is everything. And I went straight from there to the hospital and I spent, I think seven or 10 days there. So I was 13 at that point. And that was definitely very it changed the trajectory of my my treatment and my mental health journey for sure. Before I was really depressed and I had no idea what was going on because I think another thing that's really unique about adolescent mental health issues is that, yes, when you're older and you're experiencing depression, you can say, I've been experiencing this for such a long time and it doesn't feel like I've ever felt any other way, but I feel like that's just exacerbated when you're a child because you already have this memory loss from when you were younger, these happy moments. And so for me, I'd been developing this depression for years. And so all I could remember of my childhood was sadness and shame and guilt um, and truly depression. So before I didn't really know what was going on. I thought that everyone lived that way. I thought everyone didn't look forward to anything. I thought that everyone struggled in a really severe way. And so after that point, getting a diagnosis and people saying this is not normal and things can be different, that was one part of it. But another part was kind of just being in that environment of being in a psychiatric hospital at such a young age and kind of engaging with that community and the treatment world and just the peers that I was surrounded by really my mental health kind of became, I would say, a lot more severe and serious. And I remember after that first time I was in the hospital, um, I developed really bad anxiety before I was just kind of completely numb. Like I had trouble like moving and doing things. And after that point, I was always restless. And it got to a point where I would have like six or seven panic attacks a day and I would struggle to stay through school um, and all of that kind of stuff. But as far as the depression, I continue to see outpatient therapists. I would do the group therapy where you, you work with other teens and you do individual and family therapy. And I did that for about a year and a half at home and nothing really changed. I was constantly depressed. I was really suicidal. I had multiple attempts and I was in and out of the hospital for a really significant period of time. And again, still unhealthy romantic relationships, completely had isolated myself from my friends. Um, so going into freshman year, I was not in a good headspace and that wasn't changing. And so 
after I had a pretty severe suicide attempt in my freshman year, I wasn't able to go back to outpatient treatment because nothing was changing. And so the next step that my parents and I decided to take was going to a residential program. And so I went to a program at McLean Hospital called Three East, and it's for adolescent girls. They have a boys unit as well. And they do dialectical behavioral therapy. And so a lot of different treatment programs, you kind of will find a diverse mix of CBT or DBT, talk therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy was all that they did. And so Mm -hmm. they were going completely by the book and an evidence-based treatment in a way that worked. And so I did a ton of work during, during those 14 weeks that I was there. Their typical stay was six to eight weeks. And so I stayed long beyond that, continuing to do family work and working on my own depression and my anxiety. And so within that time of, of treatment, um, my parents would fly from San Francisco, which is where I lived, to Boston, where the hospital was, every single weekend. And we would spend time together. We'd go on these super awkward outings where my mom would try and hug me. And I'd be like, don't touch me. Because I was just like so entrenched in the idea that I didn't deserve love. And any love that was expressed towards me wasn't genuine. And so it made me uncomfortable to even kind of express those emotions. And so we started to kind of build the foundation of a relationship of one of like a little bit of trust and where I was starting to be vulnerable. So I remember we'd go out to dinner and we had this kind of exercise that we would do where we called it the Tourette's game, which probably is not the most culturally aware term, but I would kind of blurt out an emotion that I was feeling because I was used to sitting at these dinners or at the table and just feeling immense anxiety and having intrusive thoughts that someone's going to come in and attack the restaurant or attack me. And so I would sit there with all this internal suffering and not say anything. So whether it was experiencing joy from an interaction or experiencing a little bit of anxiety or even sadness, I would just blurt out that emotion. And that was like the first step that I could take towards vulnerability with them. So I did a ton of work during those 14 weeks. And for the first time in two years, I was able to say that I didn't want to kill myself and I didn't want to end my life. And I was 14 and I turned 15 during my time there. So I was still super young at that point. And I started to kind of really dive into the anxiety I was experiencing before it would just kind of happen in the back burner of my head where I would experience a thought and then it would just totally go into a spiral. So I would sit down with my therapist and be like, okay, what was that first thought? And the first thought was that we were given a gratitude prompt and I would end up all the way in like, I don't deserve love or care or any genuine Mm -hmm. connection. Like I would just make that whole spiral without even realizing it. So we did a lot of work there and I was able to not wake up depressed and able to maintain my sleep and decrease my suicidal ideation. And understand my anxiety in a way that allowed me to cope with it and function. So after those 14 weeks, going back into the home environment that I had found to be so overwhelming and causing so much depression and anxiety because I was so isolated wasn't a good idea. So I went to a therapeutic boarding school, which was definitely a traumatic experience, which we'll dive into. During that time period that you were in the first residential treatment center in Boston, which did have, Mm -hmm. it sounds like a pretty positive effect on your overall mental health. Mm -hmm. Were your parents doing any work on themselves? So yes, this was a big, a big difference from what had been going on at home. And then after that point, because when they came to visit me every single weekend, 
part of the program was that they had to go to a parent group and learn the exact same skills that I was learning. Mm -hmm. So if I was learning an opposite action skill so that when I woke up in the morning and felt depressed, my job was to get up out of bed and go do my responsibilities, they would learn the opposite action skill towards the lens of, okay, I'm feeling kind of frustrated because she's not able to get this thing done. So maybe my urge is to get frustrated and yell or ask her to do this or give a punishment. So instead, I'm going to validate and get curious about what's going on in this situation. And was there Um, follow through in that? Like, was there long term follow through? I I think it's interesting. In some respects, yes. My dad going into the treatment that I did didn't even realize that teenage depression could be a thing. His dad had bipolar and committed suicide right mm-hmm. after my dad graduated college. And so he was very aware that mental health was a thing, but didn't even realize that adolescents could be depressed or have anxiety. So For him, the way he could understand was when we would sit down and I would give him my diary card, which is how I would kind of record how depressed I was feeling, how suicidal I was, and how much anxiety I had. And he would read that and he would say, okay, she's at a 9 out of 10 today for feeling suicidal of the worst she's ever felt. And she's a 10 out of 10 for feeling as depressed as she's felt in her entire life. And she's at a 7 out of 10 for feeling severe anxiety. And that really opened to eyes, his eyes of like, this is what her reality looks like. She is in so much pain and that mm. is every day for her. So as far as just an awareness of what was going on for me, that was a huge shift. And then validation was another huge thing. Before this, the story that we always refer to is I slept on their bedroom floor, my parents' bedroom floor for a really long time because they didn't know if I would be safe or if I would be okay in the morning um, if they left me in my room. So I would sleep on their floor and they would get up and go about their day. And my dad would be like, come on, Sadie, it's time to get up. Let's go to school. And I would be so physically depressed that I couldn't move. So what he would do is he would play classical music at volume 10 in an attempt to get me out of bed, which obviously won't work if you're experiencing severe mm-hmm. depression. So that was the before. And after he was really able to lean into the idea of, I don't understand what you're experiencing and I can't imagine what it is because I haven't been through it, but I see your pain and I see your suffering and I get it. So he'll, you see him all the time. We'd be like doing the dishes and I'm like, I understand that you don't want to do the dishes. And I understand that this is uncomfortable. And I see that. And we have to get this done. So it's so funny how like he's so stuck onto that idea and still uses it today. And there's also this balance that there's only so much work that you can do in 14 weeks. I was able to do an incredible amount mm-hmm. of work on myself, intensively doing therapy 24 hours a day. Um, but as far as doing one hour a week of group therapy or family therapy, being able to make really significant family changes was hard. It was work that didn't necessarily get done, that we were able to kind of just bring an awareness to the beliefs I was experiencing, that I didn't deserve love and I didn't deserve care. And that was and how you, I was. Yeah. You listen in on the Life Reset calls every single Wednesday night, and we talk about mm-hmm. these belief systems and we talk about where they came from and what what the origins of them were. And I know that we've talked about this before together about this whole perfection, like everything, Mm -hmm. like for you growing up, everything had to be perfect. And obviously that can affect your mental health. But I think that it's interesting because especially with the belief of I'm unlovable or nobody loves me or whatever, it comes from for so many of us, this this thing with our parents where it's like if I don't perform a certain way then I don't get love and when you said that 
when you would have an episode, you know, of a suicidal attempt, then you would get attention and love. It was like you were being given what you wanted only when there was a negative behavior and then they were reinforcing that and they didn't have the perspective to go, oh, I need to be giving her, I need to change so much about me and the way that I'm parenting so that way she's not doing this and feels this when she's not having an episode. And I relate to that because, and I've talked about this with my mom more recently and I think even on a podcast episode once before, but... When I was a little kid, all of my pain was denied because my parents did not want to acknowledge that they were messed up parents at all. They wanted to pretend that, you know, that they were fine because they didn't have any ability. They were like, well, you have it better than I did. Right. And I think so many parents have that where they're like, you have it so good. You don't even know what bad is. Right. (laughs) Like you live and you this and you that. And what was happening was a lot of toxic behavior and a lot of abuse was going on, but my parents were being abusive. So for you, it was coming out in a very clinical, depressed, we can put a diagnosis on this. And for me, it was very physical. And what's interesting is later on in my life, after I got sober, my migraines actually pretty much stopped. It's very infrequently that I get them. And now it is when I'm really incredibly stressed, I get a debilitating migraine. It's your body quite literally saying no, right? Mm -hmm. And and 14 weeks certainly isn't enough time to do all of your own work. But I think it's very important that while you were in there doing so much deep, deep work, that your parents were doing the same work to figure out, like, how did we get here? Because mm-hmm. I love ACEs. We you mentioned ACEs in the beginning. You scored a zero out of 10 on your ACE score, which I'm sure given what you've been through feels kind of invalidating. And there are absolutely, um, there's absolutely room for some reevaluation, I think, because the truth is that shame, chronic crippling shame and with holding love or a whatever, I think is just as abusive, even though we don't see it as that as Mm -hmm. a culture, because often, especially for, and you're a generation below me, but I think parents are so stressed out and they don't know what to do with their kids. And so we feel like, especially in this modern day era of social media and everything that we have to be perfect. And our kids are the expense of that, that perfection. They suffer because of that perfection. Mm -hmm. And when you grow up with these belief systems that get ingrained, and this is what we do in Life Reset Course, as we look at the subconscious belief systems that were formed between the age of zero to 14, I also find it really interesting that all this started bubbling at the tail end of those years. So a lot of those belief systems were already ingrained and it wasn't your parents' fault. They were doing what they thought was the best thing, you know, Mm -hmm. in order to have successful, thriving kids, they thought that they needed to be, you know, perfect. And then I furthered it totally unintentionally by thinking, okay, if I just 
act perfect or if I get to this mm-hmm. point in school or I have this emotional front that doesn't show what I'm going through, then that will make it better. Yeah. And so if I was constantly acting like nothing was wrong, of course I'm getting treated like normal. Yes. But I found that so much more invalidating because what was really going on was so painful and it was completely unacknowledged even mm-hmm. by myself. Yeah. And then the belief system is I'm not allowed to take up space here. When I do take up space, I'm punished for it. I have to go to pediatricians and have these awkward interactions with doctors. <laughs> I have to go to psych hospitals. I've got to do all this. When really what you needed was someone to go, your pain is valid. And I'm sorry you felt so much pressure. And if I did that to you, then let me undo it. And how can we function better as a family? And how can I support you in finding balance in your life? And, you know, what, what would feel good to you in this moment? You know, how can I Mm -hmm. assist you through this challenge, whatever it might be, you know what I mean? But I mean, our parents just don't have these skills, which is why I think it's so important that while your loved one, if you ever have a loved one that goes into treatment, whether it be for mental health or addiction, that you're doing just as much work. I was just just literally before we got on this call on the phone with a parent whose daughter is in active addiction. And mm-hmm. I said the same thing. I go, it is so important. If she gets into treatment, the entire family needs to be working alongside her the entire time. Yeah. And I think it's really, really important to do that. Okay. So now let's get into these horrendous behavioral modification programs because before, and I know that this has been more newsworthy since Paris Hilton's documentary came out about this mm-hmm. and about her experience. And to be honest, I was horrified. I don't know if you read some of the comment threads about, oh my gosh, people have no empathy for these children. When you're a child put in these behavioral modification programs, it can quite literally scar you for the rest of your life. This Mm -hmm. is not helpful. This is abusive. And I think, again, it goes back to, well, you're not being hit. You're not being choked. You're not being raped. Although you Mm -hmm. said there was incidences of sexual uh, yeah. I don't even know, exploit, exploitive behavior at these facilities. And we'll get into that. But I think that when people go, oh, therapeutic boarding school, they're like, it's, you know, it's like for rich kids to go, you know, do what, you know, for parents who just throw away their rich kids at these programs or whatever it might be. And it is, it is abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's time that we start waking up to how abusive this actually is and to talk about alternatives and what we could be doing better. So how old were you when you ended up going to the second facility and what was your experience like? Mm -hmm. So I was 15 when I entered that program. It was right after my freshman year. And I think the most important thing to preface this with is I am the biggest believer in treatment. We just talked about how treatment saved my life and it turned everything around for me. And I learned the most amazing skills. So the point of this is not that treatment, it doesn't help kids and it can't help kids is that it can. And it's so 
disappointing and saddening that treatment get this re- gets this rep that it doesn't because there are so many programs like this. Mm-hmm. So I was 15 when I entered the program and to enter the program, your parents have to sign over 51% of your custody. You're not Wait, allowed to repeat enter. that. <laughs> your parents sign away their custody of you mm-hmm. to go into these facilities. If mm-hmm. that doesn't like... And you don't have to. I you spent know, months at McLean without yeah. having my custody signed over. I belong to my parents still. And I had phenomenal yeah. treatment. I did more things than I ever did when I was at the other program. So as far as from a liability perspective, we went out multiple times a week to go be in the community with getting dinner or yeah. going to get ice cream, or we would see a movie, like normal things that teenagers yeah. do. And so from clear, a liability perspective, that can't even be an argument. And and to be clear, Sadie was not like Sydney was, where she was kidnapped in the middle of the night and just taken you know, somewhere mm-hmm. or that her parents like lied to her and said she was going, you know, away on a to vacation ice cream or something. Yeah. And then she never came back home. You know, mm-hmm. they they really thought that this was going to be the thing that set you up for, you know, they mm-hmm. were like, maybe they thought, hey, they researched I can't. like schools around the country yes. in tandem with three East, which is the number one adolescent program in the country. So you have world-class experts here advising on where it was going to go next. And they'd be like, this program seems good. And I remember this conversation where the person was the person we were working with who knew these schools the best. She was like, we actually had a girl go there a couple years ago and she ended up in New York for three months without them finding her. And my parents were like, oh, okay. So when I say they really did try and find the best of the best and there weren't many options. This is this is the school I attended, which really speaks to how much worse so many of these programs are. Oh, it are. speaks volumes because your parents, while, you know, I think that from this, what it sounds like to me is that you needed additional support that they couldn't provide you. And Mm -hmm. so they were going to try and they were willing to find whatever works. You know, it's like, it's the same thing if you have someone who's addicted to substances, you know, and I'm sure there's very messy past for most families with substance abuse and you've tried to help your addict on your own and then you can only do so much and then they need to go to a treatment facility. These places, I mean, there are terrible treatment centers out there, but from the sounds of it, there are no good adolescent facilities. Yeah, especially in what you call what is named the troubled teen industry, which is these unregulated residentials, therapeutic boarding schools, and behavioral modification, the ones that are specifically called those. And there's thousands of them out there. And so the specific school I attended belongs to a corporate organization that owns over 50 schools in the United States. So the same corporate organization oversees a therapeutic boarding school for girls and a wilderness program in Utah for girls and boys and another wilderness program in Georgia and a residential program for really little kids like underneath under 10 and rehab I'm sorry under 10 Mhm I'll admit kids under the age of 10 That I'm sorry that just seems like negligent parenting Mhm and I think it's, I remember one time I w- when I was in the hospital, there was this one kid who was there. He was, he might've been eight or nine and he was there because he'd tried to kill his parents. So he had to be there. 
this was the support he needed. So there are totally situations where you need that support. It's out of your own control as far as parenting your kid. And it shouldn't be that these are the options that you're handed. Like if you can, you need more support. You shouldn't be left with these programs that just send your kid away and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because what the child who's eight or nine needs is a bigger community around them that's actively Mm -hmm. working together to help aid, you know, him in, Mm -hmm. in healing. Um, Yeah. And And so like, even me, I was 13 when I went to the psych hospital and that was still kind of like, whoa, we were attending like AA meetings with adult addicts and NA meetings Mm. and they would come in and they would talk about their super graphic addiction stories. Um, And so you would attend with um, people that were 18 because they weren't technically able to go to the adult psych ward yet. And then there was this kid who his parents would bring him celery every day at lunch because he just wanted to eat his veggies and he was still doing the exact same thing. So just the resources available to people of this age demographic are so behind where they need to be. Yeah. When you arrived at the therapeutic boarding school, what was your initial reaction? So I looked at the website Um, So I had kind of an idea of like maybe where I was going and I got there and it's a school in Montana in the middle of nowhere. You're five minutes south of the Canadian border. So you drive probably an hour from the local town to this school. We got there and there was no one in sight. I go inside this house and I met by this staff member who starts going through all of my belongings because they have to log everything you bring into the program and take out. And I remember just being kind of terrified because being able to have someone your age where you can be like, hey, okay, like there's kids here. This is okay. This is normal. We're good. Yeah. And there was no one. And I now understand why they do that, which is because these kids that have gone to a wilderness program, which is when you get kidnapped and you live in the woods for three months or so it would be really overwhelming to get dumped into 30, 40 girls all being chaotic when you've been isolated for months. And to just be there with staff members was a little bit crazy. And I remember my parents were there for probably 10 or 15 minutes, just long enough for us to bring our bags inside. They're like, okay, it's time to say goodbye now. We didn't walk around the campus. We didn't meet, I didn't meet my therapist. I didn't meet any doctors. It was a house staff member. And I said goodbye to my parents. I remember we walked across the street and I, and I cried. And I, during my entire time there, I was determined to not ask them to take me home. I didn't ask them to take me home because I was committed to getting better. And I wanted to go home in a way where I was supported and I, I felt good mentally. And having gone straight from treatment and being like, I just want to go home. I don't need this. It just wouldn't have been effective at that moment. However, once I got to understand the program, there was this phase system. So you go from orientation to transition and you do all these, there's literal check boxes you have to check off. And the phase of acceptance is when you accept being there. And if you ask your parents to take you out of the program, for whatever reason, you haven't accepted being there. If you're even entertaining the idea, you haven't fully accepted being at the program. Um, even if you're like, I don't know if this is the right fit. I don't know if I have my resources here. I don't know if I'm getting the type of therapy that works for me. That is not accepting being at the program. It's so abusive, just even that, because it's like, it doesn't really give you autonomy. It mm-hmm. doesn't, re- it's it's like, 
in order to do get to the next level, you have to complete this. And in order to do this, you have to fully accept. Yeah, it's a game. You have to drop all of your own will and all mm-hmm. of your own sovereignty and become a part of this culture yeah. in order to survive. It becomes like hunger, hunger games. <laughs> it really totally. does. And I remember when I spent time at McLean, the first day we flew there, we did an intake meeting and I kicked my parents out and they're like, do you want to be here? no, I don't want to be here. Um, and it's funny because I'd read online about McLean before I went there and it's girl interrupted is based off of that hospital. Mm -hmm. The person that wrote that book went there. And so I was like, I'm going to an asylum. What the heck is happening? I was terrified, but we sat in the room and I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't think I need this. I don't think it's going to work. And they told me, they're like, so we can't take you here unless you want to be here. Every single girl you see in this program is here because they want to be there and they're committed to doing the work and they think it will work. And that was a complete, and I actually left for the night and spent the night at a hotel until I was like, okay, I believe that these people can help me and I want to work on myself. And that was completely different from this other program where some kids are transported with a transport service, which is when you get kidnapped and physically take in there. Um, and even if you go there yourself, it's not, do you want to be here? Do you see the wisdom in this? Are you willing to work on yourself? You are dropped off and then adjusted to the idea of being there. Mm. Um, and that's why there's such an issue with when girls would turn 18, many of them would sign themselves out because they legally could take back their custody from this corporation. And so you would see a lot of girls doing that. Um, and I think that would really in a big way did stem from the concept that they were put in there and not really able to accept it. Whereas at McLean, that you could be up until the age of 22, I think, at this behavioral program because you are choosing to go there and accepting it. And even they worked with girls that were there from court order for dealing with other things. And they still, they were there yeah. because they wanted to be there. So after you got through the the acceptance phase, the thing is, Sadie, because you were already such a people pleaser who was a perfectionist, I feel like this program, in a lot of ways, it's like you just pushed your way through it because you knew already how to play the game. It almost sounds like it might have re re-traumatized, but almost re-solidified all of the beliefs that if you if you only behave a certain way then you win. And when you Mm -hmm. win, you get left alone. Yeah. And so it was really, it was really sad because that reminds me of one of my friends when, when I was there. And so there was two different girls that struggled with pretty severe eating disorders while I was there. And this is not an eating disorder program. And so one of them would not eat for a couple of days, but she also wouldn't do her chores. She wouldn't go to school and she wouldn't check these boxes. So she would get attention. They'd be like, you need to eat. She would get put on safety, which is when you have to be with a staff member 24-7. And this other girl would do her chores. She would go to school. She would act as she was supposed to, and she would mm. go days without eating a single thing, and it would never be noticed. And so if you are meeting these different markers, to some extent, you can get somewhat of your way through the program. And I feel like that's true for the first couple of phases, but the length of stay here is 12 to 16 months. And no one can keep up a front that long when people are constantly watching you and trying to therapeutically like kind of unravel what's going on. We would do group therapy or different types of therapy probably five times a week. No one can keep up a people pleasing front for that long. And as soon as that Mm -hmm. becomes 
they become aware that that is something that you're capable of doing and good at doing, that becomes the biggest target of your work. And being able to kind of navigate this in a way that was kind of, I don't want to say more professional, but in a more effective manner than some girls, I became known as the queen of exceptions because I would advocate for things like having a longer social call with my parents because I knew that if I had them both on the phone, I wouldn't get to talk to both of them. One of them would just end up talking the whole time. Or I was coming out of eating disorder recovery when I entered that program. And a big part of that was eating throughout the day. So I advocated for having snacks. And that was something that was really negatively looked down on by different staff members and peers. And so the way that we would describe it, the girls would describe it, is that it's a it's an individualized program that has to hold the same boundaries across all students. So when someone's asking like, hey, can I have this, this rule adjusted or can I go home for longer? We have to hold the same boundaries against all students. But when you see parents visiting and we'd be talking to them and talking about our work we were doing, it's an individualized program. Yeah. So it really was just dependent on what the need was in the situation. Yeah. And while you were there, you said you witnessed a lot of abuse. Did that abuse begin that you were witnessing begin to affect your mental health in a negative way? I mean, I think it I think it really depends. So like I mentioned, you can only hold up this front for so long. At some point you give in and you truly believe with every every ounce of you that these people are helping you. And they're doing the right thing. Well, because they psychologically force you to get to that point. They manipulate you to the point where they're like, you need me in order to survive, which is interesting because it's kind of like the same thing you went through with that boyfriend Mm -hmm. of like, we need each other. And if we don't do this together, then like, (laughs) what's going to happen? And the sky is going to come falling down on us if we're not together. And oh my gosh, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of emotional Mm -hmm. abuse. Yeah. So... I remember one specific instance where someone, we weren't necessarily really close friends, but we we were friends and we were roommates at one point. And there was a girl that she was rooming with at the time who had mentioned in a group that she had previously raped someone, Um, which that's not normally something someone would bring up in a group. We joke, that's definitely an individual therapy kind of thing. Don't broadcast that to everyone. But she'd mentioned that. And so she ended up molesting her roommate. And the roommate had to, they didn't do anything. They were like, well, well, she's talking to her therapist. We're kind of seeing what happened. We're talking to everyone. And so the girl that got molested was like, I'm not sleeping in this room and would slept on the couch for a week because she wasn't going to share a room with this girl. So I remember we were brought into the office and they talked to us and they were like, the us was this group of girls. We lived in this kind of separate house that was behind the house. It was two stories and you could fit five girls in there and a staff member, but they didn't have enough staff members to put a staff member in there. And if they had, they totally would because they would have staff members live with the girls the first couple of days that they worked there. And are these all female staff members? They did have male house parents, but it was if they were in a relationship with someone, another staff member. So like a couple could be the house parents which created a whole other issue when they would break up and then bring it to work and totally a mess. Oh my God. Um, So, but sometimes male staff members would cover the shifts. So it depended on the, on the situation, but most of the time they would hire female staff members to be house parents. So I remember we were brought into the office and at this point, I think I'd been there for more than six months and the girls that lived out in that little house kind of 
had their shit together. We were able to go on visits. We'd accept the program. We were doing well in school, et cetera, et cetera. Check the boxes. You're like, we're really hoping that putting her out here with you will just, you'll be able to have, be a good influence on her and it'll really just be able to turn around. The rapist girl? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they put, they put it on all of the other girls to somehow be responsible that she doesn't rape anyone else? And it wasn't just that. She had a really big um, self-harming problem and a really big purging problem. And so that in itself, you technically shouldn't be at that kind of a program no. because you need more support. Yeah. And so they're like, we're really hoping that if she spends more time with you guys, like this will help with the trajectory of her work. And we're like, um, and she also was, she put bones under my friend's bed. Like there was just all these weird different situations that had happened prior to that. And I remember I had a call with my dad that morning and I really pushed to get it moved up. And so I called them and I was like, dad, they're trying to room me with someone that just molested her roommate. And I, I don't feel safe. Can you please talk to someone? Because we were like, no, like, is there any other option? Can she room somewhere else? And they're like, no, like this is the rooming plan that we've come up with. And I was like, dad, like, I need you to talk to someone. I cannot room with this girl. She's just molested her roommate. And like, I don't feel safe with this. And he's like, Sadie, are you sure? I was like, yes, I'm positive. Like, I don't feel good about this. And he stepped in and he called the residential manager and he was like, you cannot room her with this girl. Like, I'm sorry, you just can't do that. Which I think any normal parent would do if there was a safety risk. And I remember one of my really close friends didn't have a social call that day. So she wasn't allowed to call her parents. She wasn't allowed to get them to kind of put that boundary in and they roomed her with that girl. And she called her therapist and the therapist was like, I really can't do anything here. I could get them to move this girl, but if you room with her, I promise you that you'll be able to have a longer visit. So So manipulative. Oh my gosh. mm -hmm. So she roomed with the girl and Lots of self-harming, lots of purging issues, continuously problems, and she eventually went to a residential program. But for me, having had my parents step in, whenever I would ask for anything or try and advocate for myself, the question would be raised of, well, we really just don't know if you're able to advocate to your, for yourself because you got your parents involved. And so that was totally that was negatively reinforced for a really long period of time. What was the total time that you ended up staying at this facility? I was there for 14 or 15 months. And when it concluded and during your time there, obviously these things were happening. You had mentioned to me that girls who were addicted to drugs were getting involved in dangerous sexual behavior in exchange for drugs. Mm -hmm. There was just tons of chaos going on at this facility. Was it a choice made on behalf of the program that you were ready to go home or did you and your parents come up with that decision? So the plan was always for me to leave exactly after my sophomore year of high school Mm -hmm. ended. I would finish the academics and I would go home. Best case scenario, I would have gone home after the first semester of my sophomore year, but we weren't thinking that was going to happen. I got to the end of my sophomore year, you're not ready yet. And even when we neared my graduation, I'd actually started my podcast. I remember being like, can I go home? Can I, I I think I'm ready. Can I, I'm ready for this phase. Like I am ready to go home. And I kept being told that I wasn't ready yet. And so 
eventually I was able to leave and I got what is considered a program graduation. And so when you look at these statistics for this school or many schools in particular, when they tell you that your child will leave not depressed, your child will leave not suffering from family issues, they're doing that with the statistics from the program graduates. To be given a graduation, you have to not meet the statistical requirements to be depressed, to have family dysfunction, or to be struggling with anxiety. That is one of the boxes that are, has to be tracked in your treatment plan. And you sign that treatment plan the first day you enter the program. So when you leave and they include only the data from the girls that have successfully completed the program, you're not guaranteed to not the ones who signed out at 18. Mm-hmm. Not the ones that, you know, just decide to go when they... Or the parents that see that their child isn't getting better, their child is yeah. more depressed, their child is really struggling at this program and pull them out. And that was another thing that was really traumatic about that was that the staff turnover and the student turnover was immense. Mm. There was very few staff members that were still there when I left compared to when I got there. And sometimes staff members would be fired for, there was one staff member that was fired for putting us in physically unsafe situations as far as like adventure activities. Um, there was another staff member that was fired for doing strip searches with girls when she wasn't supposed to be. Other ones were just fired for like smaller issues. Um, but a lot of them would leave because I don't know a lot of people that want to live in the middle of nowhere, Montana and work with these girls that again, you're working with kids that are really, really struggling. That's not an easy job. And that's why people go to training for years to work with kids Mm -hmm. that are struggling because it's not easy anything to do. And mind you, and when you're there's working- very few therapists that are actually even at these programs. A lot of them just lie and they're like counselors, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no psychologist at this program, not a single one. Which is wild to me mm-hmm. um, that people, you know, people are being conned into paying $100,000 for a year in this facility mm-hmm. when they're not really getting any evidence-based treatment. You were telling me before that currently in the U.S. each year there's 50,000 children who are enrolled in these therapeutic boarding schools. And I will say from experience that the vast majority of them end up with me in rehab 10 years later if they're lucky. Yeah, And it's really sad because it really sucks to say this, but I don't know any other kids from the time that I was there that aren't either on extreme amounts of drugs right now, really struggling with things like eating disorders or are selling themselves naked on the internet. And that's not an exaggeration. Like I, I wish that other people were happy and loving life and able to completely recover, but I was really unique in that I went to a different program before I attended this therapeutic Mm -hmm. boarding school for so many of these girls, they'd been kidnapped from their home while their parents watched, and then sent to this program where their custody is signed over. And to anyone that struggles with attachment issues or belief that they don't deserve love, getting your parents' rights and them being parents taken away from you willingly, like that that messes you up. And when staff members are reminding you of that, when you're asking about certain things or you're wondering if something's okay, yes, it is because they have your parents' rights. And so, so many of these girls didn't have the opportunity to do intensive work and learn the skills to help them cope through that and cope afterwards. So when they end up back in the real world and they realize how deeply traumatic this experience was, 
they don't know how to deal with it. And they can't deal with it because so many have struggling relationships with family members or they're going to college straight out of treatment, which is totally a mess. Yeah. So if you could go back in time to Sadie, you know, maybe in the early days of struggling and you could say anything to any parents that are listening to this right now, and I'll ask the same question after to any teens or young people who are listening to this, what would you say? I think to any parents, I really didn't believe that I deserved love or that I deserved care. And that was a root of a lot of my suffering. And I've gotten to a point now where it doesn't really matter what's going on around me because I can find that love and that care and that support in myself. And yes, when things are stressful or when things are crazy and chaotic, like being at a therapeutic boarding school, that doesn't help my mental health, but I'm able to navigate it in a way where it doesn't completely crumble like it used to. So to any parents, really, really getting curious with your kid and giving them not even, I don't even know if it would be the benefit of the doubt, but say what's like the worst possible thing that they could be experiencing that right now, whether it's extreme shame, maybe they're experiencing extreme depression because of things that are happening at school. Maybe they're feeling really unloved. And how can you counteract that and make changes to change those beliefs? Mm-hmm. Because being a parent, you're in a really unique experience. And that a lot of the times these belief systems can be changed and you can have a really big influence on that. So That is definitely what I would say to parents. To kids, I always say that talking to someone is definitely the first step. When I was really depressed, the hardest thing that I ever did was for that first time admitting that I'm not okay and that I need help. And that was that first time that I was in the hospital. It took me that long to admit that this was bigger than me and it was really actually a problem. And everything after that, it wasn't easy, but I had people in my corner. I had people supporting me and I wasn't alone in my suffering anymore. So talking to someone is the biggest thing. And the other thing that I always mention is kind of educating yourself on what your life can look like. When you're a kid, you experience, you think your reality is what everyone experiences. And that was so true for me. So being aware that your your daily life doesn't have to consist of depression or anxiety or conflict or true unhappiness and that it can look different. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who's the parent of a 13-year-old who's really going through it right now. And I was talking about how at 13, I just thought every single thing was the biggest deal. And that's not to invalidate anything, but it's just you don't have the ability to really zoom out and go, oh my gosh, that embarrassing thing that happened at school today is not the end of the world and it's going to be okay. And I think it's really hard for kids these days because their peers are often also so traumatized. And so, you know, so we're going to our peers for support and to go, oh my gosh, so which is the worst we didn't even thing touch you can on that. do. But at one point I was running crisis management and putting kids in the hospital <laughs> in my class, like every single week. Cause I was like, this is my job. Yeah. I know how to do that. Like yeah. horrible. It, it's, you know, so I think we go to our peers when we're little, you know, for, for advice and support thinking that that is where I should get my support and it really should be through loving adults. And then my, my suggestion piggybacking off that to parents is that there is an amazing book called hold on to your kids by Dr. Gabor Mate. I highly suggest that every parent read that book. I also suggest Janet Lansbury's book, 
you guys know that I'm a big fan of her, actually both of her books, but Hold On To Your Kids, I think is really important. And it talks about the importance of surrounding your children with healthy adults who know how to be tapped into their feelings and who care about your kids. Finding Mm -hmm. that little tribe of parents, you know, and like-minded parents and having grandparents and aunts and uncles around. So that way your kid feels surrounded by competent adults. So that way when they are dealing with a challenging situation, they don't turn to their peers for advice, which often leads to further pain and suffering. Um, because they can't get the because support that they, they can't need. get the support. And that's that they not the fault need. of the peer that they're going to, to no. but any teenager is not equipped to deal with severe mental health issues or severe trauma exactly. or just issues like that's, that's why people get training for this. Yes, exactly. And I also think that, you know, we've seen we've seen the way that that bad advice has played out, whether it's, you know, go smoke some weed and you'll be fine (laughs) or here, have a drink of this or in the event of some things like you should just kill yourself because this isn't worth it anymore. Like, yeah, kids really don't know how to be dealing with these things. And especially in those preteen years, it is so important that we quite literally hold on to our kids. And there's a fine line in the book talks about that between being, uh, you know, overprotective and, mm-hmm. and also just being um, someone who your kids know, you know, can, that you can turn to them and, and yeah. come to them with anything. Um, and I think it's really interesting what you said about how, when you're in that age, like you think that everything mm-hmm. really is the worst thing that's ever happened. And we know biologically teens and kids that are approaching their teenage years, they experience their emotions in a stronger way than an adult does when they fully are able to logic through things. So even just putting yourself in that lens of, okay, my kid is having a bad day. And for them, this is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And just understanding that and realizing how intense those emotions are, even if you don't agree with it or you don't understand it, just being aware of that reality that they're currently experiencing. That's because the prefrontal cortex isn't developed. Um, And we Mm -hmm. also talk about that in the Life Reset course. So shout out to the Life Reset course. Highly suggest everybody signs up for that. And shout out to Sadie for coming on and being so brave. Can you please share with the audience your Instagram and your podcast? Yes. So my podcast is called She Persisted and you can find that on all listening platforms. Mm-hmm. My Instagram is at She Persisted Podcast and you can find all the information about my story and daily life things, all of that. Love that. Thank you so much. This week's affirmation is I am worthy of love. And so it is. If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at recoveringfromreality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com.